0: Hello and welcome back to this, an experimental trip. Uh, We are doing a Real World Crossover episode. Uh, If you've been following our website, you'll know that Jerome Cousin has been posting his top 100 movies of... or favourite movies of all time uh, to the website with little write-ups. But we decided as the year was closing out, we were going to do a podcast wrap-up where he gets to elucidate his thoughts to me, uh, the other cinephile on staff at The Real World who's got time on their hands to spend two hours talking about movies uh jerome how are you doing this afternoon
1: for you it is uh it is the afternoon over here and it is uh it is getting colder and i'm sure a lot of people are going to wonder like how does one start thinking about a list of 100 favorite movies and ben I'm, i'm here to tell you it's almost like a lockdown is going on and i have nowhere to go so I've just been rewatching movies, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean that's. Ba- I mean, I've not been rewatching a lot, to be honest. Apart from the stuff that we're doing for the movies with Matt, like most of everything I'm watching is new content. And like talking to some people, and they were saying like, no, 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 lockdown is all about like. Comfort food. I'd rather be watching like all of the Simpsons on Disney Plus than finding new stuff to watch.
1: Well, I I I like to think that I've done a a balancing act. Like I certainly have been watching, rewatching these movies, but I've certainly also been consuming like. A lot of new content that's been coming out recently, like two shows that I was waiting to watch immediately after I was done with this list, were the Queen's Gambit and The Crown, and I was just ready to eat those shows up uh, to a crazy degree. So that's that's exactly what I did. So that is that is how I celebrated. And in a way, Ben, watching The Crown prepares me to talk to you.
0: Yes. We are all the royalty in the UK.
1: I mean, you are in some some form or fashion royalty, I guess, right? Because you you live you live in England. I do live in
0: England. I, I mean, we're not going to get into my ties to the actual family, but um, uh, it, it's weird. like so. How so? How have how did you come down to settle on doing your like top 100 movies? Was it a case of like you made a big long list of like 200 movies and then basically in the process of rewatching it? Like, did you rewatch more than was on the remit to get this list down?
1: There are definitely a few movies that I did rewatch just to make sure they would not make the list. And a couple of the examples that I'll give are MASH from 1970, uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Those are a couple of the movies uh, that came up a little bit short. But I think the the thing is so I I know a lot of people use letterboxed these days, but everything, whenever I see a movie, I will typically rate it on IMDb. So everything that I've ever watched movie wise, I've rated on IMDb. So basically, I took anything that I give a 10, a 9, or an 8. And I basically kind of made a list based off of that, and then I just started whittling it down, and there are certain qualifiers for how I whittled things down. Uh, There are certain movies that I will refer to as, like, really excellent movies, but, like, to to call something like Schindler's List, for example, a favorite movie, that's... Like, I've seen Schindler's List once. I am never going to watch that movie again. I know it's really good. It deserves all the awards and all the the praise that it gets. But I'm never going to sit down and watch Schindler's List again. I kind of feel similarly about Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, which are also, again, two of the best movies that have ever been made in this country uh, by Martin Scorsese. So, like, movies like that... I, I kind of took off the list for those reasons, and then there's the the hashtag problematic individuals. So, like, do I really want to put American Beauty on this list? <laughs> no. I love American Beauty. If there were if there was nothing problematic about American Beauty and Kevin Spacey was not involved, American Beauty would probably have been in my top twenty because it is one of my favorite movies ever made. Unfortunately, for for the reasons that are very obvious, like I'm not I'm not interested in watching American Beauty anytime soon, and not just because Kevin Spacey's involved, but there's also content issues related to it as well that only make it creepier. And something like the usual suspects as well, which has the the double the double death of Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey. I,
0: I've never heard anything bad against Brian Singer. Like what's he done?
1: Well. If you listen to uh, the various X-Men podcasts that have been done by Mike, Matt, Brian, and me, we have all talked about uh, the various accusations against uh, against Brian Singer and... I'm sure that if you Google search and find out some of his onset behavior, I'm sure you will figure out that uh, he is—he is not a good person. So, or
0: even mostly his offset behavior, <laughs> such as just not showing up to set to shoot the movie. I mean, I day. guess it's
1: onset behavior in that he's not there, but it's offset behavior in that all the the horrible things that he's done over the years have been off the set. So, like, movies like that definitely were not going to make the cut, even though I think in an ordinary scenario, I think they would. I mean, I think that over the last few years... I think we've just become a lot more cognizant of the art that we consume and just how problematic things are. And I know that this has kind of led to, oh, you're canceling people and and crap like that. But I think the way that we watch movies and the way that we consume art is a lot more different. And I feel like I'm so much more aware of things than I would have been like if I had done this list like 20 years ago, 20 years ago, if I do this list, uh, there's a lot of Kevin Smith on the list. And there are a lot of movies that would probably be considered very problematic, and there are still some movies on this list that definitely have their problems. But I think I think I'm just a lot more aware of like what I want to watch and like what the problems are in these movies, like the behavior that takes place, or use of homophobic language, or you know. I know that people criticize Quentin Tarantino for using a certain word in his movies, but I did not realize how often that word was also used even in Pulp Fiction. So uh, just developing more of an awareness of how we watch art and consume art, I think that is also something that I I learned about myself just in putting this list together.
0: So it's kind of a mix of what actually stacks up to a rewatch. Like a lot of these are like more comfort watches than they are great pieces of art but then also stuff that maybe hasn't stood the test of time but like the problematic elements don't supersede the actual conversation about the movie they're just like an interesting wrinkle in the tapestry of like what makes the movie work and what doesn't make it work
1: yeah and and as we get into some of these movies i will i will definitely get into specifics i think there there are i think whenever you start to watch Movies, and I'm not talking about like when you first go to the movie theater and you see like a Disney movie or you see like a DreamWorks animated movie. I think there's some movies that are on this list that kind of taught me how to watch adult movies in a way, and I think that even if those movies are not, if they even if they don't hold the test of time, they're still important parts of who I am as a film watcher and as somebody who likes to watch. And go to the movie theater a hundred times a year because that's that's what I do in any normal year. And even in 2020, I'm still watching a fair amount of movies because there are, because of the streaming services. So, movies are a really important part of my life, and I know that they are an important part of your life. And I think that this list is 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 honoring kind of where I was as a film watcher kind of where I am, and potentially where I'm going to be going in the next few years.
0: That's good. I mean, like, I, looking at the list, I don't think there's anything on here that I'm going to quibble at someone having on their list. Like, this isn't, like, Matthew Waters putting uh, his, like, weepy teen romance movies at, like, the top of his, like, all-time list.
1: Can I just say, Perks of Wallflower, Wallflower was, uh, is, would could be considered a uh, a runner-up. It did not make the list, but... It uh, it was probably closer than you would have wanted, Ben. Yeah,
0: but then, but Matt would have like Adventureland a number one, and like Adventureland is a, a a fine movie, but that's about as far as I'm willing to go with it. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so interestingly, let's let's crack on with the list. So, the first, like, in fact, the first, like, ten movies you got on the list are all very close together in time. So, from 100 to 96, you've got Palm Springs, If Bill Street Could Talk, Avengers Endgame, Black Panther, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. So, this is the last three years' worth of cinema, pretty much, and also a hell of a lot of Disney.
1: So, one of the things that I decided to do is, is I, I, I kind of made this arbitrary rule where anything that would be on the list from the last three years would automatically go to the bottom because I feel like movies that are made in the last three years I have not had enough time to reflect and absorb these movies as much as movies that are farther along in the list and I think three years is still kind of it's still arbitrary but I think it was fair like I feel I feel that my my understanding of even things like Mad Max Fury Road and Moonlight, which are not which are on the list, but are not under these rules. I, I feel like I've absorbed them enough to really fairly qualify them in some way, but any movie that was made in the last three years that was going to make the list was always going to be put at the bottom, and originally, I was not going to put any 2020 movies on the list, but after I saw Palm Springs, I was like, this movie is going to go on the list because I think it's going to be one of my favorites. I've watched it you know a couple times since then you talked about comfort food earlier i mean that's exactly what this movie is i really want to talk about this movie in some detail but ben has not seen it so i do not want to spoil it for him
0: give me give me the pitch like what is i mean obviously i understand it is andy sandberg doing his take on groundhog day sort of but not really
1: so, this is the this is how it comes across to me, uh, and I'm going to talk about it from both Andy Sandberg's perspective and from Krista Malati's perspective, and I'm going to do everything I can to not spoil the movie. So, for me, the reason that I think this movie works, and the reason that it made my list, is when I first understood who Andy Sandberg was, and I was coming into the realization that he was on SNL, and he was doing all this stuff, to me he came off like a bit of, a, of an Adam Sandler knockoff, and... That is That was my perception of him for a long, long time.
0: That is kind of like what I got from the UK as well, because obviously one of the first big cameos in Brooklyn Nine-Nine is, is Adam Sandler, and it's the similar kind of like musical stylings that he would do as well in the early days. And then they did that movie together as well. What was the name of that movie?
1: I, I don't know. It's not. It's definitely not a list because there are no Adam Sandler movies on the list. Although Punch Drunk Love came came pretty close, but
0: but yeah, I mean, I would I would agree in terms of Andy Sandberg where it took kind of the last four to five years for me to realize what he was actually offering, and kind of like I don't I don't know if it was like post Lonely Island that kind of he blossomed for me.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think re- I think just getting into Brooklyn Nine Nine makes you realize that there is a lot more to this guy than just being a being an Adam Sandler knockoff. Because I think just in the nature of being on a television show, you know, his character on that show has has had a chance to grow and become increasingly less problematic as the seasons have gone on, and I, I really just appreciate what he does. And Popstar is not my favorite movie of all time, but it is certainly it is certainly better than the box office would indicate, and I certainly appreciate what he was trying, even if it's even if that movie is not necessarily my jam. This movie, because it's a time loop, I think what you get is you get Andy Samberg. Kind of channeling a lot of Bill Murray in his performance for obvious reasons. I think people are going to relate this to Groundhog Day, but where I think this movie is so different is in the way that it, it brings in Kristen Miladi Malotti, Miladi's character, and what a journey, what a journey she's been on. And you know, I remember being a fan of How I Met Your Mother and re and watching that show, and just thinking to myself, there is no way they are going to possibly be able to cast an actor who could possibly play the mother and they cast Krista Malati and she was really, really good. And then the show was a complete disaster and did her character real dirty. And it made me really angry. And since then, she's been on Fargo. She was in Wolf of wall street. She's been in a lot of stuff, but she's never really had a chance to, to really excel. This movie gives her that opportunity. And that's really all I want to say Palm Springs. It's not an awards contender, but I think it is it is it came out at the perfect time, I think, in a lot of ways, and I think its ultimate message about time loops and kind of how you figure them out I think is a really fitting message for the year that is 2020.
0: I'm really excited to see it when it eventually hits the UK. It's one that I've, like... I think it's one that a lot of my friends are really annoyed about because, like, Brooklyn 9 is one of those shows that's kind of blown up in the UK. It's, like, a recurring joke on the UK Netflix Twitter account is that as soon as they upload the next season of Brooklyn 99 people are already harassing them for like when the next season is going to go up it, it feels odd that no one picked it up in the UK but like when it comes out whenever it does next year I'll be watching it day one at the very least
1: yeah and it sold for sold to Hulu for like 17 million dollars I think it set the record
0: isn't it 17, like that, and then 69 cents was the joke that they made, whereas, like, we could get the number one deal for a, a streaming movie ever, if or the number one movie bought from Sundance ever, if we just add 69 cents to this total.
1: Film festival held in person ever.
0: <laughs> you have no faith.
1: Uh, maybe, we'll see. It's not going to be for a while, that's for sure, at least not in America.
0: So, yeah, uh, then you got Bill Street, which feels like a complete, like, counterpoint to that and obviously like matt and i have talked about this movie at length on our podcast uh which i assume will be out by the time this episode releases
1: it will be and i i think i'm actually in agreement with you on this on this particular movie in that i think moonlight is great i'm really glad it won best picture i think i like beale street more because I, i don't know there's just something about the characters that I think are, I think there's a lot more to connect to. I think the fact that it is based off a book and there's a lot of theatricality that they're able to go through and it's Regina King. Come on. Yeah, we love Regina King. I mean, we stand Regina King on this website. Absolutely. Uh, So let's talk about the Disney movies. Uh, There really isn't, we've talked about Black Panther, Avengers Endgame, both of us on our various podcasts, Superhero Pantheon, as well as Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. All that I can really say is, it's I, I feel bad that I wrote and watched both of these before uh, Chadwick Boseman's passing, and that's really the only thing that I wanted to kind of address for a minute here. I mean, the, the, to be able to do what he did the last you know few years, knowing what he was going through, and I don't think there's a right way to behave after you get this diagnosis. I mean, there are some people that phys- probably physically would not be able to do this, and I think that's totally fine and acceptable. But for him to do what he did and to play this role in multiple movies, I mean, it's what it's it's going to be. It's going to go down as the stuff of.
0: Yeah, and then the idea that he might also end his like end his career with a double Oscar nomination this year is. Certainly impressive. Um, um... I,
1: I think there's a distinct possibility he could win both. In this weird year, I think they I think they could very easily just give him both supporting actor and best actor. I mean, I'm really hoping he wins for Defy Bloods. I have not seen Ma Rainey's yet as we are recording this. I'm sure it's going to be very good. But, I mean, his, his performance in Defy Bloods, that's almost a movie that ended up on the list, too. I mean, it's just transformative, and knowing what we know now, it's even more so.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of Disney movies that maybe got race correct, what about the Disney movie that didn't get race correct?
1: <laughs> are, we ta- are we talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi? Uh,
0: yes, the one that John Boyega, like John Boyega's specifically calling out this movie in terms of, and I understand why, because obviously this is the movie where John Boyega and uh, Rose Tico get stuck on a on a ship and they go somewhere else and they're away from the main plot and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> point of controversy in Disney's portfolio.
1: You know, I understand where John Bagley is coming from and I certainly understand his perspective on it. And I think when you are in a bubble, I think it's really hard to it's really hard to see kind of the big picture. The problem with the last Jedi and if there was follow-up to the Rose and Finn storyline in the next movie, I don't think that this is a problem for this movie because I think that what they are going for here is actually aged incredibly well. In that the issues of class are becoming ever more pronounced, as we will discuss in other movies on this list. And Ryan Johnson was very clearly going for something, but J.J. Abrams is the son of two producers and cannot see that. So you're not going to get it from J.J. Abrams because that's just not who he is as a filmmaker. And I think that, I think The Last Jedi is an extraordinary piece for Star Wars, I think it's really unfortunate that it was not followed up on in a way that it deserved, but it still makes the list because it completed the story of Luke Skywalker in a really appropriate way, and that's why it's probably going to go down as my favorite Star Wars
0: yeah, no, I, I absolutely adore this movie. Like, I, It's the one movie that I'm sad that I've never got to talk about on this website. Uh, that might change in the next couple of weeks. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. There might be something coming. But, but yeah, so let's move on to the next five films that we've got on this list. You've got Logan, 2017, Without a Trace from 2018, Parasite from 2019, The Farewell from 2019, and Get Out from 2017.
1: Okay, so it's it's I, I have it written in correctly. It's Leave No Trace from 2018.
0: Oh, of course it is. I was just reading the bloody list.
1: You're 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 pulling a you're pulling a Will Ferrell from Anchorman over there, just reading what's in front of you. I
0: know, I know. I watched that movie this week.
1: It's a uh, it's a really it's really extraordinary. I think it was my favorite movie of 2018, and I've forgotten just how much love it had gotten from critics. Like it was on a lot of critics' top 10 lists, and I always forget about that. Um, it's just it did not get any awards. Yeah, exactly.
0: I- it, it, it's happening at the moment. Like we are doing this the night that the Grammy nominations have come out, and it's astounding to see the disconnect between these awards and the people who actually consume these things on a daily basis. That like they can shout from the rooftops at the top of their lungs that like this movie is really really good, and it just gets no sway because political reasons or machinations. It's just not like on the on the wavelength. Obviously, what Leave Leave No Trace is from Deborah Granik, who got that surprise Oscar nomination for Winter's Bone in 2010 that immediately scared the Academy so much that they changed the rules to be, it's no longer a locked in 10. You have to have like a certain percentage at the Oscar nominations because it's a movie that no one had seen. But like Winter's Bone is one of those movies I feel has aged really, really well from that 2010 set. And obviously, is this her only follow-up so far to...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an absolute, it's a travesty that she has not gotten to make more movies other than Leave No Trace. And she doesn't even have anything in the hopper, I don't think. And that's and that's really unfortunate, because if you look not just at her filmography, but look at the fact that you've got, she's also a star maker as well, with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, with Thomason, I forget her last name. You know, she's also going to be a star as well just based on her filmography since even Leave No Trace. So she's very clearly someone who knows how to cast uh, lead female roles. I think Ben Foster is really good. And this movie addresses issues that are not discussed, flat out just not discussed when it comes to PTSD after Afghanistan and Iraq. Because we in America like to pretend that those wars uh, did not happen, and in the case of Afghanistan are still technically going on because we still have troops there. And I don't think that movies have done a very good job. I think you've gotten kind of a limited amount of modern war movies with The Hurt Locker, which I know you and Matt have talked about, uh, Zero Dark Thirty to an extent. But those, even those are not traditional war movies and dealing with what has happened in the last 20 years. And I think Leave No Trace is a small movie and it's very clearly focusing on these two people, but I think it's addressing issues that simply are not being addressed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do like that the note on the Wikipedia page for this movie uh says that it's the second best reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes after Paddington 2, a true masterpiece.
1: Ah uh, yeah. I I I like the Paddington's. They they are not on the list, but and uh I feel like you're going to arrest me after saying that.
0: I will. I mean Paddington 2 is an absolute masterpiece top 10 movies of the decade, no question. Um speaking of top 10 movies of the decade, Parasite. God, what a fucking movie. <laughs>
1: A Parasite is just unbelievable. I'll I'll briefly say something about Logan since it is on the list. Logan is very good. We've, again, talked about this in a million other places. It's very good. Very good Western. Great great exit for the character. That's really all that can be said about Logan. When it comes to Parasite, I mean, this is just an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. And the fact that it is the first South Korean movie to be nominated for even Best Foreign Movie, if you can believe that. And... The fact that it won Best Picture is just, it's uh—it's great. And I know 2020's had a lot of really rotten moments, but uh, Bong Joon-ho and being able to win just the trifecta of Oscars that he did is never not going to impress me, and it's something that we'll be able to take with us. And I'm hoping that it is a, it's a really important moment uh, for the history of movie making in this country because it's proof that, you know, people can read subtitles and people can watch movies that are not from this country. And I hope that this is something, I hope this is a trend that we see uh, continue in future years. I think, again, 2020 is just kind of a weird year. And I don't, I I almost, I'm not going to say next year's Oscars don't count, but I think it's going to be very different. Um, But, you know, I guarantee you when Bong Joon-ho makes his next movie, that is a movie that's going to be widely sought after and widely seen probably by more people than even Parasite because of the reputation and the fact that it immediately got kind of rebooted by HBO's potential miniseries speaks to just how good this movie is I don't know if the miniseries is going to be any good my guess is it's not but I mean just just everything that Parasite is doing is, uh, is pretty great, and I know that there are a lot of things that are specifically South Korean in nature, with some of the references and whatnot, but I think the the things that it has to say about class, and the way that the lower classes are pitted against each other, I mean, chef's kiss, that's that's all that could really be said. It's one of the yeah. best movies of the decade, no doubt. It's
0: it's just a, a wonderful movie, and I, I'm excited to get to rewatch it, because I've not actually watched it in 2020, but I'm very excited to have like, sat in it for a year, and like, get to see how it holds up as like that oscar celebration was kind of the last good thing to happen before the world shut down for 2020
1: yeah i mean pretty much in march or february depending on where you live it uh, it all kind of shut down it's it's i think it's just been the last three years i don't know whether this has been because i have a movie subscription i've just been able to see everything but it just feels like these last three years and i know you've said this before have just been have just been really excellent and Get out and Lady Bird are two other representations of that. I think the, you're, what you're talking about with Jordan Peele um, is you're talking about one of the most exciting new voices in cinema probably that has come down in a long, long time. And the thing that always that always is crazy to me is that you're talking about someone who maybe created one of the best sketch comedy shows of all time. Like, there's a distinct possibility that that is true. And then, you know, obviously he cut his teeth on that. He obviously had a lot of writing to do. I don't know if he did any directing on some of those episodes, but it's very clear that he was finding his voice on that show. And then to just come out of the gates with this movie, I mean, he he was in the movie Keanu with Keegan-Michael Key. People pretend that didn't happen but it did he didn't direct it though but to come out with this and to make a movie that even if it didn't make as much money as a lot of the movies on this list it just feels like it's its tentacles have reached everywhere it feels like we've already gotten a lot of really bad movies because of it Uh, i'm looking at you antebellum i i just feel like it's been incredibly influential for for good reasons and for bad
0: I mean, like, this is a doubleheader. Like, this and Ladybird, they both feel, like, probably the most vital directors to have made their debut in the last ten years. Like, both coming from completely different areas. But, like, Jordan Peele has been a complete boon for horror uh, in cinema. Because, obviously, like, even with... Even Us, which is, like, really, really good. And then his Candyman reboot, which I've heard nothing but, like, good buzz about. Like, obviously, he's, like, putting his... his Cred that he's gained from this movie to good use, but this is just such a a vital and amazing debut director. Like, it has to undoubtedly be, like, one of the best debuts ever, surely.
1: I mean, I'm having a really hard time. I'm sure that there are other debuts that have been extraordinary as well that we're not talking about, but just for this to come out of the gates this way, and Greta Gerwig with Lady Bird, I think... So, the way I see the the Greta Gerwig thing is, I think Lady Bird is an extraordinarily written film. I'm not sure about its direction nearly as much, but then when you watch The Little Women, that's where I think you see Greta Gerwig grow as a director. And I think that that's, that's really exciting, because... I think Greta Gerwig is always going to be the type of person who is going to be able to write screenplays, but was she ever going to be able to direct her own stuff? And she got to do it on Lady Bird and I think the results were really positive and I think it was a really it it was a really great showcase for a lot of a lot of actors, Saoirse Ronan, Laurie Metcalf, Tracy Lotz. I mean, just kind of a murder's row of a lot of great theater people, a lot of great young actors and brought, and uh, and Ben, one of the greatest one of the greatest moments in cinema is Timothy Chalamet just reading the People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Just one of them. I don't know if you can get that, but for a certain type of person in America, that scene pretty much nails that person.
0: I thought you were gonna say it's the titular role and got disappointed to be honest.
1: <laughs> no. Was it was it oh. would not do that.
0: Not do that, uh, and then I mean you, you skipped over Farewell, which I know you have controversially claimed is your favorite movie of 2019 over Parasite.
1: I just, and I still believe that, by the way, I I still think that the Farewell is 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 a, is a really great film because of the story that it is that it tells, and so you've seen the Farewell, correct?
0: I've seen the Farewell. I saw it with my friend who is from uh, from Hong Kong. And uh, it was incredible to watch it with her because she burst into tears uh, the moment the movie ended and was just like incredibly nostalgic and touched by it. And uh, it was just a glorious time in the cinema. And I utterly adore The Farewell. It's in my top 10 for 2019. It didn't quite hit my number one spot just because the trio of Parasite Little Women and Portrait of a Lady on Fire picked it there. But like, I mean, The Farewell's superb. Lulu Wang is a treasure and I can't wait to see what she does next.
1: Lulu Wang might not even be the best filmmaker in her relationship, though, which is really scary.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Uh, but Lulu Wang is very good, and The Farewell... I mean, that ending, I, I think you get used to, like, big moments and, like, huge audience reaction in Marvel movies, like Captain America getting the hammer and Iron Man, like, snapping his fingers and stuff like that, but, like, there were... Like there were gasps and tears at the end of the farewell when it was revealed that uh, the grandmother was still alive. Like I was, I was stunned by this because I know that this is a it's it's a story that's been told on uh, national public radio here in the states, but like I didn't know this story and it was extraordinary. And I uh, I saw this movie when I was in Chicago and. Uh, I definitely saw it with a heavily Southeastern Asian population. I, don't, I, I can't speak of it was all Chinese, but it was definitely Southeastern Asian. And yeah, the farewell just hits me. And I have to admit, so I lived in China for years, so that may be why I'm a touch biased as well.
0: That's fair enough. We've all got our own personal biases that are going to move things around. Um, I assume you haven't spent time working on Wall Street because your number 89 movie is, is Wolf of Wall.
1: So this uh, this movie, this is why Matt Waters could not host this podcast because I feel like making him watch Wolf of Wall Street would be punishment for him because it's three hours long.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I told him what your number one was as well and he was like, those two movies being on the list mean that it would just be a struggle for him to host this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Wolf of Wall Street is a movie that is incredibly problematic, and I am here to acknowledge that I totally understand if people don't like this movie, and even if they hate it, I I think that there are absolutely reasons to do that, because Jordan Belfort is a monster of a human being who should be in jail, and I think I even said that in my write-up, that I think he's a terrible person, but just the way that this movie is made... I just I can't believe that 71 year old Martin Scorsese. I mean, I, I people talk about George Miller and what he did on Mad Max Fury Road and I also think that's that's great too, but like you got 71 year old Martin Scorsese just making this this movie that is it's goodfellas on steroids and goodfellas was also a movie that felt like it was on steroids too and just The way that it comes together, I think this is my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. This is the movie that he should have won an Oscar for instead of being eaten by a bear and winning one for The Revenant. Just everything about this movie works. I think Margot Robbie, what a debut for her in this movie. And I think everything about it works. I mean, you've got Kyle Chandler as an FBI agent, which is pretty much the most perfect casting I think you could ask for, like, if you're going to ask, like, who's the person that could possibly go against Leonardo DiCaprio's cocaine-ridden Jordan Belfort? It's pretty much Coach Taylor, and that's, that's really all there is to say about it, but, you know, I, I think that there are better Martin Scorsese movies, like, I, I think I would say Raging Bull and Taxi Driver are better, but there's something about Wolf of Wall Street that I've watched this movie multiple times, even though it's three hours long.
0: Uh, It's a real shame that Matthew McConaughey had to win an Oscar for True Detective the same year that Wolf of Wall Street came out, because I agree with you, like, Leo really does deserve (laughs) the Oscar for this performance.
1: I mean, he's just, he's off his hinges, and the thing is, is that if you look at his body of work with Martin Scorsese, it just feels like he's either trapped in a biopic, like The Aviator, or he's playing off of... Daniel Day-Lewis or Jack Nicholson, and that's really hard to do, to play off of two legendary, to probably maybe the two greatest actors of our generation and any generation. I mean, certainly you would also throw De Niro in there and Pacino possibly, but to act against those two people, I mean, it's really hard, but this was his movie right from the start, and it just feels like he let loose, and I've, I've just been really impressed by his output. It feels like It feels like he was holding back for a while just trying too hard to win an Oscar, I think now that he's won his Oscar, now is when I think his career is actually going to be interesting.
0: Well, I think that's the biggest shame, is that like he wins his Oscar for what is a technical showcase movie after some of his most vital performances are his Tarantino and his Scorsese collaborations. Um, they're the most interesting that he's ever really been as a performer, is is this kind of like couple-year stretch, not counting Great Gatsby, obviously. But the fact that he he wins for what is one of the most self-flagellating movies of all time is kind of stunning. And I'm, I'm very excited to see what he does, because obviously his not, maybe not his next movie, but like one of the movies he's going to be doing very soon is going to be him teaming up with De Niro to do another Scorsese film, which hopefully he isn't like kind of forced into the straight man role again. Because um, I mean, like even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's kind of playing that straight man role, although I don't think Brad Pitt is being quite as big as as Nicholson or or Danny Day-Lewis are in their movies.
1: Right. It feels more much more like a two-hander. It feels like things are a little bit more even. And I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I mean, just what he's doing, I think the scene with the little girl is probably my favourite. And even the scene where he gets to play off of the god Timothy Oliphant. I mean, it's just... <laughs> I mean, Ben, can you believe we are in a world where Timothy Oliphant is just a cowboy? Any show or movie he's in, that's all he does now. He's just a cowboy. He's just running it. He's a sheriff. He's a U.S. Marshal. That's all he does now.
0: He's a man who apparently stole a, the armor off of Boba Fett.
1: That is, that is a true fact. And he was a U.S. Marshal in Fargo. A Mormon U.S. Marshal in Fargo.
0: I assume you've seen his chaotic interview with with Seth Meyers.
1: I mean, it's it's exactly what I would expect out of Timothy Oliphant.
0: Uh, right. Let's do a chunk now. So we're heading, we are jumping very far back in time. Number eighty-eight is Philadelphia Story from nineteen forty. Number eighty-seven is Clerks from nineteen ninety-four, and number eighty-six is Platoon from nineteen eighty-six. Oh, symmetry.
1: It's uh, it's good symmetry. Um, so the Philadelphia Story is a screwball comedy. It's um, it's basically Katharine Hepburn. Was considered to be box office poison, so she called in two big guns: Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, two of the biggest movie stars at that time. And they just make a screwball comedy. And your mileage is going to vary if you try to watch this movie. You will. You may very well hate it because it is. It's not about the act. The, just the style of acting is just so different. Like a movie like this would never get made today, just because the actors are so different. But. It's uh it's 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 really good because of all three of the lead performances. I mean, you have basically three actors at the peak of their powers, and that's really all I could say. I mean Jimmy Stewart of that generation of actors, when you think about like Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, and Humphrey Bogard, Jimmy Stewart is probably my favorite because he's just been in so many movies over the years, and I think this movie in particular, which he won an Academy Award for, which is funny because, get this, Ben, he thought he should have won it a year earlier for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, so this was kind of a makeup Oscar. Can you believe that?
0: <laughs> I cannot. I mean, so I've not seen a lot of movies from before I was born because I'm a, a terrible, terrible human being and person, but I did watch this very year, His Girl Friday, which I thought was absolutely magical. Also features Cary Grant and, like, My partner was watching it with me and was just going like, everyone is talking too quickly and stuff is happening so chaotically. And I was sat there having like the best old time. So like the idea that they did like a very similar style, well, not similar style, but another screwball comedy in the same year starring similar actors. I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to see Philadelphia Story.
1: And you should also see Arsenic and Old Lace and Bringing Up Baby as well. Both of those movies are of a similar vein.
0: Excellent. They're just things to add to my like increasingly long list of, of movies to watch.
1: All right, so we have to have the Kevin Smith conversation because this is kind of an awkward one. Because I think for a certain generation, I don't know Ben if you fall into this, but
0: this so so Kevin Smith was definitely a director when I was like early teens. Who I decided to go like I, I can't remember what it was that triggered it, but I watched all of the view Ski movies. In fact, do you know what it was? I watched Clerks two on a plane. And obviously, Clerks 2 comes out when I'm about 12, 13 years old. So I'm watching this movie, and I'm having the best time of my life. And I I need to go watch all the rest of his movies. So for whatever reason, at that age, I decided to watch all the movies, which is, like, the perfect age to watch Kevin Smith's filmography. And it's just before he falls off a cliff and starts doing all his work for higher stuff. Um, but, yeah, like, I... As a teenager, I absolutely adored Kevin Smith and devoured his videos of him telling the story of his Man of Steel script um, and all the rest of it.
1: If An Evening with Kevin Smith was a movie, it would be on this list. (laughs) I think I would put it above any of his current filmography because I think An Evening with Kevin Smith, believe it or not, holds up so much better than any of his films do, just because the stories are so legendary. And any time I see a giant spider in a movie, I always think back to An Evening with Kevin Smith. But I think... So the first Kevin Smith movie that I saw was Mallrats. And Mallrats is admittedly not a great movie, but when you're 15, 16 years old, it's basically the perfect movie to see for this director because Mallrats is kind of a distillation of so many of of that kind of humor. I think that in some ways kevin smith walked so kudapatel could run and it feels like is the one that really cracked this kind of comedy and you know kevin smith's also one of the first people to put stanley in a cameo at a time when stanley probably wasn't as well known so kevin smith has done a lot but he's also got a lot of very problematic things to his filmography there are a lot of moments in all of his movies that i think are pretty awkward and There's a lot of homophobia, especially in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, but for me to not have a Kevin Smith movie on this list would be utterly ridiculous, because I think that for me, I I don't want to speak for you, but I think for me, this was my introduction to independent movies. Like, if Kevin Smith, if I watched Mallrats, I don't know if I would have watched something like Clerks, because Clerks is technically a very bad movie. But I watched it because I really liked Mallrats, and then I saw Chasing Amy, and then I saw Dogma, and then I saw Jane, and the Bob in, in theaters when I was 16 years old. So Clerks is such a weird movie because, from a technical standpoint, it's probably the worst movie on the list, but just the significance that he has towards, again, me becoming someone who likes movies and watches movies and appreciates movies... I mean, Kevin Smith gave me a lot of language to use for better and for worse. So, Clerks Clerks had to be on the list. And I, I really wanted to put it at number 37, but I could not justify it. <laughs> uh,
0: like it, it is interesting because obviously Clerks is like the opening salvo. But I feel like a, I don't know if it's still the case, but it felt like at the time when I was like catching up all the movies, that Chasing Amy and Dogma were the two that kind of most people were holding up as like his best.
1: I I would say the dogma from a technical standpoint is his best movie before kind of things start going downhill. I think the problem with Chasing Amy is that ending, (laughs) we can't... I I couldn't put Chasing Amy on the list because that ending is just so horrendously bad. And I will say that I think he tried to rectify it in his most recent Jay and Silent Bob sequel. I think he put some work into kind of rectifying that ending, but boy does it boy has it not aged well Ben did you know that there can be bisexuals because <laughs> Chasing Amy does not believe that
0: no clue that absolutely zero clue that bisexuals are a thing that exists in this world
1: absolutely not uh, so let's uh let's change tones completely and talk about platoon because Oliver Stone is a director who also uh, his career has not aged very well and I think he's done but if you look at his Like, 1980s to 1990s. He's got a pretty extraordinary run of movies. And JFK almost ended up on this list. I would love to watch Matt Waters watching JFK because it's over three hours long. Mm -hmm. Um, But Platoon, I think, is the best anti-war movie that I've ever seen. I think there are a lot of movies that pretend to be anti-war movies, but they're really not. This movie really is... It makes war look terrible and ugly and it addresses issues of class and, like, who are the people that are fighting in this war. And you've got baby Willem Dafoe in this movie. So it, for, that, for all those reasons, that's why it's on the list.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's weird because Oliver Stone feels like one of those directors who kind of, he has this incredible 80s, and then it feels like he keeps on making these political movies, but he kind of loses what he's actually trying to say in the political movies. And so, like, you get to his 2000s where it's like, World Trade Center and W and Snowden and it's like what what are you doing what what are you trying to achieve here you're the man that made Platoon and JFK as you said
1: it, isn't it weird though that he directed a Quentin Tarantino script in his in his life though <laughs>
0: absolutely with Robert well, been, Downey Jr. in it especially the same year The Pulp Fiction comes out as well makes it
1: yeah I mean. I, I'm a huge Oliver Stone fan. I think that there, are, there are even some movies of his that, that are not like in the part of his canon, like Heaven on Earth and Talk Radio, that I think are incredibly relevant. Heaven on Earth is one of the few Vietnam War movies that is from the perspective of somebody who's Vietnamese, and Talk Radio gets into a lot of the things that we would probably be discussing now about celebrity and culture. But Platoon makes this list because, again, I think it's the best. It's the best anti-war movie that that I've seen, and I think that you see a lot of you see a lot of movies that try to do this, and I don't think they're as successful. Even Apocalypse Now, as good as that movie is, I think it still kind of glorifies things a little too much.
0: Right. Let's move on. Number eighty-five, Ratatouille. Number eighty-four, Philadelphia. Number eighty-three, Forrest Gump. Uh, a nice. Tom Hanks Oscar-winning performance two-header. Number 82, The Wizard of Oz, and number 81, Man on the Moon. Uh, I love Ratatouille. I think if it wasn't for Wally, it would be my favorite Pixar movie.
1: There are six movies from Pixar on this list. Ratatouille is number six. That should tell you a lot about what I think of Pixar and their output. Um, it's funny, Ratatouille is a movie that... I really liked it when I saw it in theaters. I don't think it's... I think there are parts of it that have not aged as well because of kind of what it says about criticism. But it is... It's so gorgeous, even 15 years later. Just the vistas, the way that it's shown... I mean, it's it's really good. The, the, the parts of the movie that age well, I think, are just the look of it and the fact that Pat Oswalt is the lead rat, and I think that, that works out really well. And this is kind of the first movie where they actually rendered humans really well consistently for an entire movie. So, yeah, this is a really good one.
0: Yeah, like I mean, you look at the Toy Story movies of the 90s and the humans look terrible, and The Incredibles is kind of stylized... In the way that it does it, so like they're not realistic proportions, whereas this is is aiming for that realistic proportion human kind of kind of deal. Um, I actually disagree on the criticism thing. I think that speech about criticism at the end is one of the most beautiful things that Pixar have ever done. And obviously, there's a whole issue here where Brad Bird often gets tarred with a kind of Randian um, brush in terms of, like, his exceptionalism and stuff like that from The Incredibles and, and Tomorrowland and stuff like that. But, like, Ratatouille feels like the movie that kind of rebuts against a lot of those things, the idea that, like, greatness can come from anywhere, including this tiny rat that can control human beings through their hair.
1: Well, I will say, so there's a couple things I want to respond to. First of all, I agree that the ending is very good. I think the way that it pays off is, is, is excellent. I think the issue is, when you talk about Brad Bird... He did not start as the director. He kind of came in and kind of finished it. So it's very interesting to me just, like, whose ideas were whose. Like, did the original director, like, what was his vision versus what Brad Bird was doing and what was already done? So I think you do have to take that into account is that there was another director before this. I don't know how much I buy into the Brad Bird and Ayn Rand thing. But it, it's something that I, I'm definitely aware of, and th- just think about Brad Bird's kind of style of filmmaking, which feels very old-fashioned and hasn't really aged well. Like, I think when you get to Tomorrowland and Incredibles 2, I think there are definitely some issues. But uh, he's still one of the legendary animation directors of all time, and this this movie is the first of two on the list.
0: Yeah, like, even if he did nothing else the rest of his career, his one-two-three-punch of Iron Giant, Incredibles, he is just a absolutely tremendous animation triple punch
1: and the fact that he did the Simpsons as well
0: and and yeah and he's the consulting producer for so much of the early Simpsons for sure Philadelphia and Forrest Gump I've watched Philadelphia for the first time this year or Forrest Gump is one of those movies where even as a Brit like it's Absolutely everywhere But I've rewatched Both of them this year His Philadelphia performance Is so much better Than his Gump performance Like It feels insane to me That he wins them Back to back That like He wins for Philadelphia And then the next year They are going Oh shit Forrest Gump is so undeniable We have to give this man An Oscar two years in a row
1: It's It's probably something We're never going to see again And it feels like Tom Hanks Basically became Like Mr. America Just in these two performances Back to back And just how extraordinary he was, especially in Philadelphia. I mean, it's weird to me because I don't even think Tom Hanks is the best performance in Philadelphia. I still think Denzel Washington actually is the better performance of the two. I don't know how you feel about that, but I just feel like, I feel like, I don't want to say that Tom Hanks' character is static, but the emotion, the emotional arc is mostly with Denzel Washington, and I really feel like both of them deserved Oscars. I just think Tom Hanks should have been in the supporting category. I think there there are reasons why he was probably nominated and and promoted for the league category. But, I mean, I think he's good in Forrest Gump. I think, man, can you imagine, like, can you imagine Tim Robbins playing? Because that's who was supposed to play this role originally was Tim Robbins as Forrest Gump. Like, that doesn't work. I feel like Tom Hanks is, like, one of the only people that could probably have pulled Forrest Gump off because. Oh yeah. That movie he, he, is a mess.
0: Yeah, he completely nails what the movie is going for, and like he's got some terrific acting in it. Like his the final scene with him and and Jenny. where like he he meets his son, and like his breakdown of asking like whether or not his son is is disabled is genuinely heart-wrenching and like we can get into like whether or not we should have people with disabilities playing actual disabled characters and stuff like that but like he completely nails that moment in a movie where he's being asked to do so much like this is a movie where in the first five minutes they put tom uh, tom hanks into a clan hat like that's that's how insane this movie is is that like they go like yeah we're gonna put tom hanks leading a klu klux klan charge
1: And we're going to name him after a Confederate soldier. And let me tell you, that has also not aged very well.
0: It's I mean,
1: obviously, like the thing about Forrest
0: Gump I find the most baffling is I genuinely don't know if it's an indictment of the things that it's saying. Like some of it feels glorifying this particular era of American politics and then other parts of it, it feels like it's like but this was all shit, right? Like we all understand that like everything that's happening here is terrible and bad and not very good.
1: Yes. And I think that that is why this movie is ultimately not as good as the other two very famous movies from 1994. I think Forrest Gump is still the weakest, but like I saw this when I was nine years old. And when I talk about movies that taught me how to watch movies, this is very much one of those movies. This is one of the first adult movies that I saw in theaters so, I think that this has always been this has always been one that has stuck with me, even though I acknowledge how problematic it is and the way that Jenny gets treated is abhorrent but i mean it's it's just one of those things where it's always gonna stick with me, like the Vietnam cliche songs like this is the first time that I definitely saw that and started to understand like how war movies were executed and you
0: know, you know what the, the insane th- the insane thing is though this is the first time it uses those songs against a Vietnam backdrop mm-hmm. Like, like th- this creates the idea that... Uh, like, this is the first time that Fortunate Son gets put over a Vietnam scene. And because this movie is so big, it immediately creates the idea that... Yeah, but that's just the soundtrack to, to the Vietnam War, it's Fortunate Son.
1: It's it's pretty wild. This is the You know, Robert Zemeckis... You talk about Oliver Stone's 1980s. If you look at Robert Zemeckis' 80s and 90s, I mean, it's just... It's home run after home run. And then it just kind of stops after Castaway. It's just it's just a, a, a river of very bad movies and I want to say Jonathan Demi a very good director very underrated I, I think he did a really good job with Philadelphia Philadelphia is also a movie that has not aged as has not aged well in a lot of ways but I think for its time and for what it was trying to do I I think it's it's really important and even for me as somebody who went to a Catholic school for the first 14 years of my life it did not and, and was not exposed to even other people of color and a lot of the LGBTQ community. This is an important movie for me as well as a teenager. And obviously, you know, I live in Chicago and have since gone on and my horizons have expanded. And, you know, I have a much better understanding of this to where Philadelphia is almost like this, this kind of movie is almost like a 101 level understanding of what it's trying to do. But I still think that it's important in some ways, because just seeing people accepting who Tom Hanks is, both as a gay man and as somebody with AIDS, I think that's really important still.
0: Mm, no, absolutely. I mean, I the weird thing is I've watched every single Jonathan Demme and Zemeckis movie this year. So watching both of their careers is interesting to see, because obviously, as you say, like after Castaway. Zemeckis falls off a cliff and gets lost in in CGI hell but Demi is this guy who I feel like so much of his career is like well he's just the guy that did Silence of the Lambs like that's that's what his claim to fame is um, but he's got so many great humanistic movies and obviously Philadelphia is a kind of apology on his part for the way that um, he he treats the trans identity in, in Silence of the Lambs and I don't think he fully nails what he's going for but like in terms of what this movie is, in terms of a straight man directing a movie about what, like, talking about this thing that at this point in American history is very much being shuffled off or being treated as, like, this abhorrent, terrible thing that's only happened to degenerates. Like, it's it's the best, really, that you can expect from it. And, again, it's because he's a humanist. And I do think Philadelphia gets kind of very unfairly tarred with the idea that it's like well it's the platonic ideal of what oscar bait is because philadelphia is a hell of a lot weirder than so much of what comes out nowadays that's very obviously oscar bait um yeah like philadelphia is a movie that i absolutely adore like again i can see like it's not aged well it, it being directed by a straight man it not being fully embedded in the AIDS crisis of the time is is to its detriment but it works surprisingly well.
1: And it's not just the fact that he's talking about these issues in terms of sexuality, but there's also the Denzel Washington part of it as well, and African Americans' relationship with homosexuality, I think, is very different in a lot of ways than than Caucasians, because some of it has to do with religion, and some of it, again, has to do with this idea of masculinity, but I think Jonathan Demme does a decent job with that part as well, and Obviously, I'm sure that there are black critics who will disagree, and I would, to- I will totally read what they have to say and take it as legit. But I think that's also something that's re- that was really impressive on rewatch too. Uh,
0: Wizard of Oz, do you have anything new to add to like the vast catalog of thoughts of Wizard of Oz?
1: I feel like Wizard of Oz is one of those movies that you just see it when you're five years old, and it's just part of your lexicon for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, like this. This is. I, I cannot picture what. I'm sure it's one of those movies that's gonna be like lost to time eventually, but like I can't imagine this not being a movie that I show any hypothetical children have in the future.
1: No, I can't either. I mean it's it's just one of those universally loved movies that I mean, it's even airing on television on Thanksgiving even this year. Eighty years later, this movie's still being aired on TV.
0: Is that because they're scrambling to replace peanuts?
1: No, I mean Wizard of Oz is always a movie. It is aired on television on Thanksgiving every year since I think television was invented.
0: Even when they were in black and white, so it kind of like dulls the actual impact of that transition.
1: Yeah, even even back then. I mean, and now you can watch it in HD, and uh, it's uh, it's it's pretty extraordinary. Just, I mean, there are just some aspects of it that haven't aged well, but it's a movie from 1939, and. I don't know when you understand what Judy Garland had to go through in life, I think your perception of this movie changes a lot.
0: yeah, I mean it's just a timeless classic that's not much to say about. Uh, and then Man on the Moon, which is I mean it's a classic, but I definitely don't think it's obviously got the 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 appeal of Wizard of Oz.
1: i the the thing about this movie is I think Andy Kaufman is such a weird person and to try to get to try to do this movie well was gonna be really hard the fact that you get the perfect actor in Jim Carrey to to play this role and there's since been a documentary made which probably has not probably doesn't portray him in the best light but you also have Milos Foreman who is a legendary director and directed a movie literally called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest so you have the perfect director you have the perfect lead person and I think his story is pretty naturally cinematic, and I think it just it works on, on the dramatic level. I think it works on a comedic level. And maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. Courtney Love, pretty good actor. <laughs> it, I, I, the weirdest
0: thing about it is like where it fits into Carey's career. Because obviously he's had his, like, massively successful huge movies. He's made this successful transition into into blockbusters and whatnot. And then it feels like the last couple of years of the 90s, he's kind of scrambling to find where he fits. Because, obviously, he does Lie a Liar in 97, and then he does his, like, one-two punch of Truman Show and Man on the Moon. And he's kind of flitting between these darker, more dramatic performances. Before eventually, he retreats and goes. I need to do something like The Grinch and Bruce Almighty in the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, he's. I think he's had a really tough time. I think he's. I mean, both of the, his dramatic movies in the 90s are on this list. Truman Show is going to be on a little later. But he won Golden Globes for both of these, and then wasn't nominated for an Oscar for either one. He even referred to himself as the Tom Hanks of the Glo- of the Golden Globes after he won for Man on the Moon. <laughs> I mean, it may, again, he probably
0: should be nominated for both of these movies. I mean, the fact that his he didn't even end up getting an Oscar nomination for Eternal Sunshine, it I don't know what it was about the Academy Awards that they were, like, looking down on his dramatic performances, when he's probably given three of, like, the best dramatic performances of the last 25 years.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, Jim Carrey is one of those people. I mean, his 1994... Whatever you think of Ace Ventura's ending, very problematic. Just that year alone, to release, to have Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, I mean, those are three iconic comedies, not just of the 90s, but for all time. And then he just, he has, like, a very good career. I mean, I would argue that he is, like, Truman Show, This, Eternal Sunshine. He's had a lot of really good movies since then. And it just feels like, well, now he's just Joe Biden on Saturday Night Live. That's that's what his career is now.
0: <laughs> Doctor, I don't know where it is that he kind of, like, switches off. It does feel like he does lemony Snicket*, it, and then everything after that is kind of either him trying to find something that he used to do incredibly well, or it's just, really, you're going to do Kick-Ass 2? Like, what, what inspired you to decide to do that? And... Like it's a shame because like it really does feel like two thousand and four kind of like breaks something in him in terms of like that performance in yeah. terms of like that I mean a lot of
1: these movies are not successful at the box office. I don't know if that's a huge part of it. I think it's the same I think it's the same problem that Adam Sandler has had over the years in that he does a lot of comedies they're very successful he tries to do dramas they get critical acclaim but then they don't they don't get nominated and I think that's really unfortunate because. I think when Adam Sandler is in the right movie, he's very good. When Jim Carrey is in the right movie, I think he's one of our best actors.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's it's kind of stunning, like because again, I would put Adam Sandler up as one of the five best performances of of twenty nineteen in in Uncut Gems, and it's interesting and obviously I think it does show that like I mean you see it on television all the time where like dramatic shows can be very funny and like how a comedian is like very well suited to do these kind of performances. I don't know if like getting into like some kind of internalized pain that comedians have to do to self-flagellate themselves on this big stage to make people laugh.
1: An SNL cast member has never won an Academy Award, but someone from In Loving Color has, which is really strange to me. Like you think (laughs) about like Dan Aykroyd was nominated for an Oscar. Bill Murray's been nominated. Eddie Murphy, of course, Adam Sandler. You know, comedians just have a really hard time. And then Jamie Foxx wins for Ray of all movies and has not had, I would argue, has not had the best career of all time. No, absolutely
0: not. Right. Here's our next five then. So we've got number 80, Saving Private Ryan. Number 79, 25th Hour. Number 78, Tropic Thunder. Number 77, Field Dreams. And number 76, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, a, nice, a nice grab bag of very different movies here.
1: Boy, when you, when you read that out loud, I was like, boy, this is a very diverse, very different. I mean, this is probably the most interesting five that you could possibly get. Saving Private Ryan is the quintessential war movie. I don't think it's necessarily anti-war. It is the second movie. I found this out, Ben. It is the second Let's Save Matt Damon movie. The first was Courage Under Fire. So Steven Spielberg did not start the trend. He was just merely following in this case.
0: that first movie that he's in is Matt Damon the lead or is he supporting? Because I feel like the... Okay, because I feel like the only one that breaks it is The Martian where The Martian's just like, yeah, we're going to make the Let's Save Matt Damon movie from the perspective of Matt Damon.
1: But yes, that's what Saving Private Ryan kind of is. But do you... What was the last time you saw this movie?
0: Oh, God. A long, long time ago. Like, I mean... I've been planning on doing a big Spielberg rewatch at some point because, obviously, like I'm very intrigued by this kind of the early 2000s, post 9/11 Spielberg. I mean, this movie is one that my dad showed me. It's it's seared into my memory more so than a lot of other things. Like, I can still... Those first like, 30 minutes still,
1: are pretty harrowing.
0: Yeah, like, I can pick out individual scenes from this movie. It's It's an insanely powerful movie, but as you say, like... I mean I'm I'm more of a like glutton for punishment and I can watch uh movies that are incredibly painful and, and terrible for people to watch. Like I can switch on something like Raccoon for a Dream and go like I'm having a great time and everyone around me is bawling their eyes out at <laughs> what terrible things that I've put on in front of them.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, saving Private Ryan saving Private Ryan is not the kind of movie that you are going to want to watch on a nightly basis. And it's, it's kind of a tough rewatch. I think there's just enough for me to say this is rewatchable, but the first 30 minutes and even the final 30 minutes are pretty harrowing. But what, what's really stuck out in my mind just watching it again was just how well told the story is and just how Spielberg is able to do that. He's just a master craftsman at being able to, to tell stories, to, to be technical. He's technically very good, but he's not flashy. Like, just the execution of his movies, I think, is the thing that people are always going to admire about him. And, I mean, this fucking cast, holy shit. I mean, you've got Paul Giamatti in a nothing role. You've got Ted Danson in a nothing role. You've got Vin Diesel in this movie for, like, the first 45 minutes. I mean, it's it's a wild, wild cast. And I will point out to you, Ben, Barry Pepper is in back-to-back movies on my list. I did not even do that on purpose. (laughs) But I just realized Barry Pepper is in both Saving Private Ryan and in 25th Hour.
0: Wow. So this is the first of a couple of Spike movies you've got on on this list, isn't it?
1: Spike Lee is great and I will hear nothing of the sort. He has made very, very bad movies. I want to be very clear about this. But I think when you look at the totality of his career, the fact that he is kind of... He went into a slump and the fact that he was able to rebound so well with Black Klansman and... Defied Bloods makes me really happy because I think Spike Lee is just an extraordinary filmmaker, and there's a reason that there are three movies of his that are that are on this list because he's a really good director. In Twenty Fifth Hour, I think. When I saw this movie for the first time, it really blew me away. I still think it's really good, but 25th Hour is very much a 9-11 movie without directly being a 9-11 movie, and I think some of that impact has been lost. But Brian Cox's ending monologue alone, I mean, I know that people talk about Call Me By Your Name and what an extraordinary speech that was. I mean, this might be the second best ad speech of all time.
0: Uh, And then Tropic Thunder, which is for some reason a movie in my head I just have it tied to Pineapple Express. Like I feel like those two movies of two thousand eight and a lot of people I know were like, Yeah, Pineapple Express is obviously the best comedy of two thousand eight, but I always like stuck up Tropic Thunder. And I don't know if that's me being a fan of like the metaness of of what Tropic Thunder is doing.
1: This is a movie that feels like it distills a lot of the people that are in it down to their core in a really great way. Like Jack Black and Ben Stiller and even Matthew McConaughey, it, it feels like they're pay- they're playing parodies of themselves, and I th- just think it works out really well. The second time, Matthew McConaughey is on this list in a very supporting role. Also, the only Tom Cruise movie on this list is Tropic Thunder. I'm really glad that we did not get the Les Grossman movie, because I think it, de- it would not have worked. Him in this role at this time is what kind of makes those scenes work. But, I mean, even Tropic Thunder, just, Bill Hader is in this movie for, for a hot minute, and great casting, great direction, Ben Stiller, very underrated director, I would say. Even even some of uh, even Escape from Donna Moore, I think, is a really well-directed miniseries, but yeah, Ben Stiller is really good, and I feel like they, they hate the persona of Ben Stiller and what he does in his movies sometimes, but I really like him as a director for the most part.
0: That's fair. Uh, talk to me about America's...
1: Also, the fake, oh, yeah. the fake trailers for Tropic Thunder have only aged so... They've aged so well.
0: I think I need to dig those out at some point and just re-watch those, at least. Uh, right, number 77. Talk to me about America's pastime.
1: Okay, so Field of Dreams. I feel like if you are not American, you are not going to like this movie. Field of Dreams. Picture the, the most cliched dad movie of all time. Turn the volume up to 11, and and that's what you have with Field of Dreams. This is the most dad movie of all time. It is a fairy tale. In some ways I think it reminds me of Forrest Gump just in some of the ways that it tells the story, but it's really hard for me to tell Ben Phillips why he should appreciate this movie because <laughs> it's so much it's so much about baseball and having a dad and playing catch. It's very Midwestern a lot of the time, but I mean it's, it's one of my favorite sports movies. I remember the, the, the Chicago Tribune, a newspaper here, did an anti-Field of Dreams article, and just the level of hate mail that this person got. I mean, as far as a Q rating, Field of Dreams is probably one of the most popular movies uh, that would be on this list because it's baseball, because of, the, because of just, you know, who's in it. You've got Kevin Costner at the peak of his powers. You got Ray Liotta kind of in a nothing role. And uh yeah, it's, uh, and they also talk about book censorship in, at the beginning, which is a really, really random scene. And James Earl Jones is also in this too.
0: Maybe I have to just watch a hollowed baseball movie because I think I'm gonna watch a League of their own at some point soon as well.
1: I think a League of their Own is probably the best first baseball movie to watch because it's so much less about the baseball.
0: Well I mean, well, I mean the first baseball movie I ever watched was Moneyball, which I feel like is right up my alley because it's just like, oh. Oh, look, it's the spreadsheet chaotic one where it's just like, what if we break the rules of this sport and make it boring to watch?
1: (laughs) That is, I I just, it just clicked in my head. Yes, that is the very, that is the perfect baseball movie for you. (laughs) Uh,
0: Right, and then Beverly Hills Cop, which, I mean, is this Eddie Murphy's first thing that he does after SNL or has he got some things beforehand?
1: So he did 48 hours before this. That's probably the movie that he is... I believe that's the movie that helped get him in this role. But 48 Hours, it was kind of... Things just happened so quickly for him. Like, in a two- to three-year span, he went from a nothing player on SNL to basically the biggest celebrity in Hollywood. And if you look at the year 1984 in general, it's really fascinating to see, because basically Eddie Murphy, Michael Jackson, and Michael Jordan all break out in the year 1984 and become icons in that year. Obviously, Michael Jackson, very problematic person, but just to, to understand those three people and just how they all kind of exploded onto the scene at the same time is a huge part of this story, because Michael Jackson does get indirectly referenced in Beverly Hills Cop. But, I mean, Eddie Murphy, I think it's really hard for me to explain to some people just how good Eddie Murphy was. Like, when you ask me who's the best SNL cast member ever, I'm going to tell you it's Eddie Murphy, and I'm going to tell you it's not even close. Because he is so good, he is so magnetic, he's a great stand-up when he's not being transphobic and homophobic. Um, he's just got a level of charisma that almost no other performer has.
0: Wasn't it a point on SNL where like he was basically the only person on the show, and like every single sketch featured him, and he was basically like in a way that SNL has never been since the lead actor of SNL?
1: I mean, they kind of do it now because they have, like, celebrities, but Eddie Murphy was a celebrity on SNL in a way that I don't think that has been, that has really been seen since maybe the last couple years of the Farley-Sandler years, but even then, I I think Eddie Murphy as a sketch comedian, and even as a stand-up, I mean, he's just able to do everything, because he's also a really good actor, too. I don't think Beverly Hills Cop is necessarily the best showcase for his acting, but... I mean, just as a presence on screen, he is why this movie works. And if you take him out and put Sylvester Stallone, this movie is not even close to being on the list, and it's probably something you would get at a dollar DVD bin.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Eddie Murphy is someone who I've not seen a lot of his eighty stuff. Like, a lot of my knowledge of Eddie Murphy is that 90s window where he transitions from the R-rated comedies and and that kind of stuff into the kids the kids movies, the the Mulans, the nutty professors, the Shreks, the Doctor Deals, which obviously is not a high point of his career, but I feel like it is a gateway for an awful lot of people into knowing who he is.
1: Yeah, and there are, there are reasons and rumors as to why he was making the transition he was questions about sexuality, which I don't think are necessarily appropriate, but I uh, I am all in for one more Eddie Murphy run. Like, give it to me, inject it all directly into my veins. Beverly Hills Cop 4, Coming to America 2, just inject all that into my veins.
0: Excellent. Right, so the next five. So we've got The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo at number 75, number 74, Rear Window, number 73, The Thin Man, number 72, Scrooged, and number 71, Ocean's Eleven. I like the classical feel of this like little window and almost wish that number 71 Ocean's 11 was the original, even though I know the original is nowhere near as good as the the remake is.
1: I don't think we really need to talk about Ocean's 11 that much because you've already done that. And I mean, it's just good. Like, it's just a really good movie. It's a really fun heist movie. Steven Soderbergh basically just did a really good heist movie. I will say now that Carl Weiner has since passed on the Bellagio fountain scene has taken on new significance Um, But that's really all that can be said, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I think it's one of uh, Fincher's more underrated movies. I I really like this movie because Rooney Mara, I think, is extraordinary as a performer. It's probably my favorite Daniel Craig performance. Either this or Knives Out, it's really close, and I like Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig has probably done two of my favorite James Bond movies, but I am not into the James Bond ambiance, as, as so many people are. I just really like how different he is. I, I like the setting. I love just the way that this movie is shot and directed. Um, yeah, I mean, David Fincher is a really good director, and we could probably just talk about that for hours. But Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, like, I remember when this trailer came out with the, the Carano cover of Immigrant Song and just being like, okay, I need to see this immediately, because like, I feel like this window in particular, David Fincher is the king of trailers, because obviously he does... The Social Network trailer, which is obviously like creates a a terrible trend of Hollywood of using the slowed down pop song. And then he gets this trailer of like the feel bad movie of Christmas, which is just embedded in my head. I I think the only thing I've got to say about like, I think this is my, I don't like it as much as Social Network. I don't like it as much as as Gone Girl, but it's through no disservice. This movie, I think this movie is absolutely fantastic. I I think in terms of the Fincher movies I've seen, because I've got a couple of gaps, like, He's only made one movie. I'm not a fan of, and that's Alien Three. It's this I, the thing that I the thing that I remember watching this, and obviously this is a remake or not a remake. This is another adaptation of the the absolutely massive Millennium trilogy that had already been adapted in Sweden in its native language, and I don't think I realised just how much is left on the table at the end of this movie. Like, it really does feel like it's ramping up for a sequel.
1: So here's the thing. So I actually watched the Swedish versions after this because I was so into the story. I think Numi Rapace is very good as well in this role. And to just have these two actors being able to play this one role and both do it really well, be very different in some ways, I, I think is impressive. But, man, the sequels are really bad. And I remember seeing both the the Swedish version and being like, oh, these these movies are bad. But then I was really intrigued by the idea of, oh, David Fincher's going to do the sequels. Let's see what he does. Let's see what he takes out, puts back in, makes them good. And then this movie didn't do well enough, and we got the crappy girls with the hornet's nest that I have not seen because I've heard it's painfully mediocre, and it would hurt my soul to watch that. I believe
0: you mean the girl in the spider's web.
1: It doesn't. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, it does, I mean, but. Claire, Claire Foy, the queen herself. I really like Claire Foy, but man, just no interest based on everything I've heard about about that movie.
0: Oh no, absolutely not! Like it makes absolutely no sense. Like it was almost like we need to make a clean break. Let's adapt the fourth book that wasn't even written by the the original author. Just utterly bizarre choice from everyone involved. But yeah, and now now a nice little string of like rear window, like one of Alfred Hitchcock's masterpieces.
1: Yeah, I think this movie is a masterpiece and I still think that. Um, what else can you say about Jimmy Stewart that hasn't been said a million times? Uh he is I mean this the the movie's views on gender notwithstanding. I mean I think he's just really good bouncing off of Grace Kelly and just the way that every character kind of has their own arc. Like, this movie gives more love to the supporting characters than a lot of your 10-hour movie TV shows do now, because they tell complete stories, and so much of it is visual. That's the thing I love about Alfred Hitchcock, is he's such a visual director. He doesn't... he doesn't, I mean, yes, there is dialogue, but he's doing a lot of showing and not telling, and that's the thing that impresses me about so much of his work. And then, on the other side, you've got The Thin Man. Have you seen The Thin Man, Ben? I have not seen The Thin Man. It is... It's a screwball comedy and a mystery at the same time. And so much of what I like about The Thin Man is the plot is almost irrelevant. Like, yes, it matters in some cases because we have to have an ending to the movie. But it's about the banter. It's about the relationship between Nick and Nora. They are a loving couple in this movie. They are a loving couple in every movie. And none of the drama is about their relationship. And I can't think of another franchise that has ever done that. Like, th- there is like no drama. Like, not even barely any arguing between the two. That's how much confidence they have that they can just put these two people bouncing off each other, and it's gonna work.
0: Yeah, it's been on my list for a while. It's definitely something that I need to watch. And then, and then we've got Scrooged,
1: which apparently Bill Murray doesn't like. Bill Murray apparently hates this. Uh, apparently hates Scrooged, which. I don't know, maybe it's because it's just Bill Murray being Bill Murray, and that's why it's on the list, but, I mean, it's really funny. It's definitely a movie that I watch every Christmas. And I feel like you get to a certain point with Christmas movies, they just wear you down, and that's how they end up on this list, <laughs> because you just end up seeing them year after year after year. I mean, even a movie like Home Alone came very close to being on this list, too. So, that's why. What, what is
0: your reaction to, to Love Actually? Because I feel like Love Actually is like the last time a christmas movie became that thing but i don't actually know the american reaction to that as a movie because it feels like such a british phenomenon like it is on every christmas in the uk because it is such a british royalty movie
1: i have not watched love actually in a while because i'm scared to because i think there's some problematic elements to it but what (laughs) i uh i really like it um Unfortunately, it also started this trend of movies just like this. American directors tried to do the same thing, and it did not work at all, let me tell you. We ended up with a lot of very bad movies.
0: Let's do the holiday where it's like, we're going to do a holiday based around all these actors that you like, except Love Actually is actually kind of more a lot of TV people, more than anything, which I think is the thing that's really charming about it. Like, it's a lot of very big British faces from all walks of, like, television and a couple of film stars and stuff like that, whereas the American versions of, like, New Year's Day and and Mother's Day and all the rest of it are, like, just utterly bizarre, cast, like, mishmash with no chemistry or anything like that.
1: It's so wild to me that you have this movie where you have Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead, you've got Keira Knightley, you've got Alan Rickman in a romantic lead with Emma Thompson, you've got Liam Neeson, you've got... Hugh Grant, you've got Billy Bob Thornton in a nothing role, and then you've got Shannon Elizabeth and Alicia Alicia Cuthbert in cameos. <laughs> One of my favorite things about Love Actually is that they go to a bar in Milwaukee and there is a White Sox, a Chicago White Sox sign in that bar, and I'm thinking to myself, yup, this was not made by anyone <laughs> in the United States because that would never happen.
0: Oh, lovely. But right. I,
1: I do like I do actually I love I like Love Actually unironically.
0: There we go. We've done Christmas movie chat. Number 70, you've got Dr. Strangelove, another one of those like uncontested masterpieces. Number 69, Drive. Number 68, Ghostbusters. Number 67, Shaun the Dead. And number 66, The Maltese Falcon.
1: So Dr. Strangelove, I think, is unassailable at this point. I mean, what, what can you say about this movie? It's the only Stanley Kubrick movie that is on this list. I, I think he's a master for so many reasons. I think this movie works so much because of its runtime, not to sound like Matt Waters here, but I think the the 95 minute runtime is is perfect, and I mean, it's just it's really funny, it still feels really timely, and I think that's kind of a sad thing, but like, even the cowboy characters, it feels so much like George W. Bush, and just being able to watch this even years later and still appreciate that. Drive is the only movie (laughs) (laughs) that from this director... That I would even consider, because I have since gone on to hate many of his movies and his Amazon television show. I don't know what it is about Drive. It just works. Ryan Gosling is so good at this role, and I know that you you and Matt had a very spirited conversation about this movie. Like, the first ten minutes of this movie are just perfect, Mm -hmm. and it's probably my favorite part of this entire... Of the entire movie is just those first ten minutes, and I think there's some really good parts. It gets really gnarly and really violent. I love the relationship between the characters, and yeah, I I really wish there were better. There were other movies uh, for this director that I liked, but it's only Drive. But fittingly, number sixty-nine.
0: I, I do know people who are big fans of his Pusher trilogy and and Bronson, but like it it does feel like he squandered all the goodwill he had with drive with his like only God forgives neon demon and too old to die young.
1: I'm not even saying make a conventional movie. Like you don't have to do that, but like doing something like genre movie with a twist, I think was the perfect lane for him. And it just, it's not going to happen.
0: No, but he does play a man called Hard man in a video game, which I mean, honestly, perfection. So yeah, and now now a, a set of comedies which I think are kind of unassailable I, and interesting in terms of, like, obviously Shaun of the Dead is far more of a horror movie than Ghostbusters is, but it is interesting that you've got these two ostensible horror comedy movies next to each other.
1: I think that, so, to me, what makes Ghostbusters so good is it's about it's about the performances, it's about the direction, everything kind of feeling loosey-goosey and it just works, Shaun of the Dead feels like so much. there's so much more precision, and it's more so about the direction. And that's not to say that the actors are bad, necessarily, but I think Shaun of the Dead feels like so much of a director's movie, and Ghostbusters feels like much more of a performer-slash-writer's movie. And I think they both work in their own ways. I think that... I mean, I'm a huge Edgar Wright fan. I think that Shaun of the Dead and... Uh, Hot Fuzz are by far my two favorite of his. But, you know, you and Matt discussed Shaun of the Dead and how great it is, and I would agree with a lot of what you had to say. And the fact that this movie, I think it almost came a little bit too early. I think if this movie comes out in 2010 versus 2004, I actually think it's an even bigger hit because the zombie genre was really just starting to come back in 2004. I I think
0: that's the most interesting thing is, like, I do wonder how instrumental something like Shaun of the Dead is in instigating that resurgence in it because obviously you have their cameos in the next dead movie like where i can't remember if it's Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg or if it's Nick Frost and Simon Pegg where they show up in uh, in an actual George A. Romero movie so it feels like, they've kind of, like, instigated something in some way. And then, obviously, it kind of it, it, it spirals, and you get stuff like because Dawn of the Dead the remake is out the same year, and then Walking Dead is a, a few years down the line after that as well.
1: Absolutely. And I, I certainly have a lot of respect for a lot of what the work that Edgar Wright has done as far as working within genre movies. It's just a shame that Baby Driver can never be watched again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping that Last Night in Soho does not suffer that same fate
1: maybe just do a criminal background check before you before you get started maybe listen listen to the rumors that
0: everyone is shouting at you
1: yes uh, i think that would be a very good thing and the maltese falcon is just a very good film noir movie i don't know how familiar you are with a lot of film noir but this is very much humphrey bogart kind of in his element being the the slightly jilted alcoholic Detective, and this is just kind of what you get with these movies. What makes this movie uh, particularly good is, I think, the MacGuffin is pretty legendary, and it's been spoofed in a number of movies and television shows since. You've got great performances across the board, uh, from Humphrey Bogart to Sidney Greenstreet to Peter Lorre, and yeah, it just works for for the for a movie of this kind. Uh, I just think it works, and you know, there was definitely a point when DVDs were a thing and before streaming and whatnot that I would just devour, like, collections like this. I would get a collection of Bogart, or, like, The Thin Man, or Warner Brothers would do, like, Gangster Series. And I would just devour all of these older movies. So, a lot of the output that I've seen from, like, the 30s, 40s, and 50s definitely came at a point when I was, like, in my college as a freshman and sophomore
0: i mean you say the parodies i think it's quite funny how a lot of the movies that are made from kind of pre-1960 1970 my entire cultural knowledge of them before seeing them or like even not seeing them comes from the simpsons oh yes and and we're gonna we're gonna hit we're gonna hit the big one of that i think a little bit higher up the list well i watched a movie this week where i was like okay i i now understand every single joke that the simpsons was making Number 65, you've got Die Hard, which is, like, I feel like unassailably, like, one of the greatest action movies of all time. 64, Prestige. 63, Black Swan. 62, Malcolm X. Number 61, The Avengers. My my heart film.
1: Your heart film?
0: My heart film for the MCU. (laughs) Let's
1: start with Die Hard. I am not interested in the discussion about whether it is a Christmas movie or not, because, very simply, it is one of the best action movies that has ever been produced it is the star-making vehicle for Bruce Willis. It sta- it showed Reginald VelJohnson Johnson as a police officer, which is very important. Ben, do you do you know this story about Reginald VelJohnson?
0: Johnson? I'm sure I do, but regale it to me again.
1: So he plays a New York police officer in Ghostbusters, he plays a Los Angeles police officer in Die Hard, and then he would go on to play a Chicago police officer in Family Matters for a number of seasons, And in a deleted scene from Avengers Endgame, he was either a police officer or a firefighter. (laughs) But Die Hard is really good. It portrays the FBI as incompetent, which they are. So, big points for me. It is also Alan Rickman. uh, We talked about, like, best directing debuts. This might be the best film debut ever because this is Alan Rickman's very first film.
0: Yeah, I mean... Unassailable, like, and obviously it gets him a career. Like, he's in his 40s when he does this movie, I believe, and then he just spends the next couple of years basically being the villain of all Hollywood movies.
1: And it works out so well, and then he goes on to be Snape and Harry Potter, and, I mean, he's just... You know, it feels like, like when he passed, I was really sad because I was like, it didn't feel like he had enough output as far as his career goes, and then you realize that he was really only around for like 20 years, but I mean, what a mark that, that man has left. Probably, probably one of the best action villains of all time, if not the best.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, the prestige is great. I love Christopher Nolan. I don't like Christopher Nolan as a person right now, but the prestige (laughs) is really good. Uh, the best thing I can say about the prestige is, uh, the partner who I was dating at the time, this was our last official date. Uh, in the cinema to see The Prestige, so it is. Uh, it will always carry that infamous reputation for me.
0: I like the symmetry that my first date with my partner, the date that we cemented our relationship, was Interstellar, so...
1: So we both have the Christopher Nolan co- co- connection. Um, yeah, just eight years apart. The Prestige is about breaking love, and Interstellar is about uh, kind of finding love. So maybe we should keep that in mind if we ever start future relationships, to avoid Christopher Nolan movies at all costs, because we don't know what we're going to get.
0: <laughs> exactly
1: uh, Um, the prestige is really good like I feel like we talk about Inception and Memento and the Dark Knight but I mean the prestige is probably might sneakily be one of his best because just he gets the best out of Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman um, Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall are also there uh, the characters are sort of there but I mean the performances are good but the characters are bad. I mean that's that's the best way I can say it.
0: Yeah, and it's one that, it, it's that sneaky window movie where he's just made Batman Begins, which is obviously not a huge hit but it definitely like gets people interested in Batman again after a, a d- double streak of movies that people were not too impressed with and then it starts this trend of like one for me one for you kind of thing where this one comes out and I think it just starts to build momentum, which obviously then crescendos with his, like, one-two punch of Dark Knight and Inception. But, I mean, I am I will always stand Memento as being, like, just... I know it's not his debut, his debut is following, which is just aggressively fine. But, like, I'm very excited whenever he does an original idea movie. And I, I, I like Dunkirk, but it's definitely, like, Memento, Prestige, Inception, Interstellar tenet which i'm like yeah no this is the nolan i'm like fully on board for
1: yeah because nolan has just enough power to make a really good movie but he also does not have enough power to where he can just do whatever he wants and i feel like that's going to be an unfortunate byproduct of his success is that he's just going to be able to make movies at the budget he wants and edit them the way he wants and sometimes i don't think that's always a good thing but i think the prestige is a really good balance of that and uh it's really good uh, I know you've talked about Black Swan already, but I recently rewatched watched this. I have only seen this movie one other time, and I know I've only seen it one other time because my Blu-ray was still in its package. But <laughs> I, this movie, I was amazed at how much I remembered. Like, I remembered, like, 80% of this movie, even though I've only seen it once 10 years ago. I think that says yeah. a lot.
0: No, I mean, I, I love this movie. I mean, I'm a huge Aronofsky mark. I know he's not, like... Everyone's favorite director, but he was my first baby, I think, as like a, a, a growing film lover, where I was like, no, this is the director that I've decided to like pin my wagon to. And obviously it hasn't always gone well. Uh, it does mean I have to be a stand for movies like Noah.
1: Some would say that you uh, flooded and needed an arc because it didn't <laughs> work out.
0: I do like Noah. But yeah, like Black Swan is is tremendous. It's that like his two movie r- comeback of like rest from Black Swan that I don't think he squandered it, but it's definitely like I don't think he's gonna do anything quite as interesting as, as those two movies anytime soon.
1: He also really needs to see a therapist to work out whatever issues he had uh with previous significant others. That's what he needs to do.
0: This is very true.
1: Uh but yeah, Natalie Portman is extraordinary and i i think this is one of those movies where i saw this movie and i was like okay if natalie portman is in a movie i'm going to see it in theaters most likely that did not always that is not always true because i did not see lucy in the sky but for the most why, part, why didn't you uh,
0: a, masterpiece, a <laughs> because, true masterpiece
1: because i don't think i was even around <laughs> it was like in theaters and out so quickly I I just, I can't believe Natalie Portman did a movie directed by Noah Hawley, and nobody has seen it. Ben has told me he's seen this movie, and I don't believe him, because I don't believe the movie exists. Believe me,
0: I've seen it, I saw it in the cinema with three other people, two of them walked out.
1: (laughs) Uh, A movie that is great is Malcolm X the second of three... Spike Lee movies, I cannot believe that Denzel Washington did not win an Academy Award for this. It is infuriating to me, and I am not the person who's like, oh, you just win one for be- for playing a more famous person. Denzel Washington is so good in this role of Malcolm X. He transforms into this role. It's, I mean, this movie's three hours long, so certain people are not going to watch it, but this is one of the best biopics that I've ever seen, because It does have the extra time. It has that three hour running time to really tell the story. And it feels like now it'd be done as kind of a Netflix six episode thing. But sometimes I am a firm believer in this, that a three hour movie for certain subject matters works. And in this case, three hours and 22 minutes, I think it works. Yeah, I mean, I have
0: to, I I wanted to get to this. Before we record this, because I had in my back of my mind, like I've seen quite a bit of like l- l- like recent spike, but I haven't seen a lot of his like great ones. I hadn't seen Do the Right Thing. I hadn't seen Malcolm X. I hadn't seen 25th Hour, and I wanted to get to all three of these before we discuss this because they feel like his most vital movies, and part of his like claim is that like he can legitimately say like he is a director who has directed what is seen as like a a decade defining masterpiece in like five decades now, and uh it, it's just absolutely fascinating i have to imagine that like denzel not winning the the academy award for this comes off the fact that like he won for glory a couple of years earlier and the oscars are very reticent to double up
1: but then they give him one for training day and i think he's perfectly fine in training day i'm not as high on it as you but in no way would i say that's one of his best performances
0: he is like I don't even know if I like particularly love that movie. It's just it's such a big performance that it's kind of undeniable and the Oscars so often get lost in this kind of idea that like big is better. Let's,
1: let's talk about the Avengers for like 30 seconds. All I can say about this movie, it is a miracle that it happened. It is a miracle that it was as good as it was. Uh, we can cancel Joss Whedon. That's fine. But I still think this this might even though I'm not sure if this is the best movie in the MCU, but I think this is the biggest achievement in the MCU. Yeah.
0: This movie failing means the MCU dies. Like I think that's uncontestable. Like if this movie had done the same gross as what Captain America and Thor did, I do not think we are sat here 10 years later or eight years later or whatever, like still talking about these movies.
1: So yeah, that's again, other podcasts have talked about it at length. All
0: right. Number 60, good night and good luck. Number 59, who framed Roger Rabbit? Fifty-eight airplane, fifty-seven Truman Show, and fifty-six The Sting. Like a lot of movies that are like very defining to my childhood, in this in this section.
1: So, Good Night and Good Luck is one of those movies that I like because I was a journalism major, and there are a lot of journalism movies on this list for that reason. Uh, and Good Night and Good Luck, I still think works out really well. I think it's it's such a quiet movie, and knowing that George Clooney directed it, I think makes it all the more interesting. It's in black and white. Robert Downey Jr. is almost in a nothing role, like a year before he's in Iron Man or three years before he's in Iron Man. I just really like what this movie says about kind of journalism and demagogues. And I think it's actually aged really well in that there is still this threat of people like Joseph McCarthy in the world, not just in the US, but in the UK and across the world. So. Uh, it really stuck with me, and uh, David Strathern is uh, is very good. I really like him as an actor, and it's funny. So he actually comes across in two movies that are of great interest to me because, again, I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. He was a White Sox pitcher in the movie Eight Men Out, and he was Edward R. Murrow, a famous journalist. So that is how I know David Strathairn, character actor, David Strathairn's name so well.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, who framed Roger Rabbit? This is my favourite Simekis. I know, obviously, Back to the Future is kind of held up as the, the platonic ideal of like what his his movie talent sensibilities are, but like this was the movie that was we had on VHS. I would watch repeatedly. I don't think I'm like an animation nut in the way that quite a few people are, but like just the achievement of this movie feels like the culmination of things that Disney were working on in things like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and the fact that we are. 30 years on from this film, and no one has replicated what it does nearly as well. And you've got great directors in this kind of thing, like Joe Dante doing this kind of thing. Um, And nothing makes it, like, drilled into my head that this movie is such a single treatment than watching that Tom and and Jerry trailer that came out the other day, where, like, everything just feels so flat and bad.
1: And, I mean, even Sonic the Hedgehog, which I think was on the more positive end of things, even that movie, I don't think, works nearly as well as Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And... Bob Hoskins, I think he's the reason that the movie works. Robert Zemeckis, obviously, with the technical parts. But, you know, if Bob Hoskins is bad or doesn't care or whatever, I don't think this movie works. I think this is uh, a really, really good performance. And, like, just his accent alone, it took me a long time to realize that he was not American because his accent work is so good. And he just nails, it's not a Los Angeles accent, but it feels like an accent that is appropriate for the time period, if that makes sense. And that's, it's always been impressive to me just to watch him. Even now watching this movie in 2020, his performance is still really impressive. Getting the eyelines correct, matching the energy of people or people who are not there. I mean, it's just, it's really good. And I, this is probably, of all the movies on this list, this is probably the one I've seen the most.
0: Yeah, like I, I think this movie is a masterpiece. I think, again, as you say, like this is this is Bob Hoskins' movie. If he's not engaged, then it completely fails. And I mean, everything I've heard about him is like he's just one of the nicest man in like it working in the industry. And I mean, and of course you have to shout out like Christopher Lloyd, to Judge Doom is just genuinely terrifying.
1: Yeah, if you're watching this as a three to five year old, especially, it's terrifying. I mean, we, we you talk about the shoe scene all the time, and I mean, it's just amazing as a kid, like, as a kid, you're really excited because it's Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse in the same shot, and... That's like the Avengers for a certain audience, but I think as you get older, I think you really start to appreciate just everything else about this movie, so I think it's really, this is really one of those movies that's a family movie and not a kid's movie, and there is definitely a distinction between those two things, and we don't really get a lot of family movies anymore, and this movie kind of makes me, it makes me sad we don't get those as much.
0: It's one of those things where I remember as a kid, everything about this movie's plot going over my head, but the slapstick the just just what the movie's actually achieving in terms of the visual humor is is enough to keep you engaged even as a child and then you come back to it as an adult and you realize oh look it's this incredibly nuanced look at like the Los Angeles transport system
1: <laughs> yeah it's wild just when they cuz they really dig in the weeds about like bus ownership and highway and real estate and all that stuff
0: And and just the great jokes of, like, saying, like, LA's got the greatest public transport system in the world, and just what a laughable idea that is in in 2020.
1: The fact that you're in the UK and you know that, I think, speaks to just how universally well-known it is that Los Angeles is terrible with traffic.
0: And then Airplane, which is a movie that I also watched probably far too young, but is just a timeless comedy. Like, I think... the thing I always think of is like, this is the thing that always makes me think of like the joke per minute ratio that you start to see on things like 30 rock and arrest development down the line.
1: I can definitely see a lot of movies that have taken an influence from this in good ways and in bad ways. But I think this is the quintessential parody movie because there is an actual plot. This is not just making jokes. There are a lot of jokes, but there is a plot and you take people like, robert stack and leslie nielsen and you put them into these roles and they're so perfect because they may be in on the joke but they're not letting you know they're in on the joke so they play it straight and it works out beautifully i think robert stack is one of those people i don't know what is your cultural awareness of unsolved mysteries
0: uh not a huge amount i must say
1: but like even if you watch that show robert stack is such a good host because he's playing it straight, and I think we don't get enough of that. I think there's there's a lot of winking at the camera, there's a lot of jokes, people trying to be ironic. I think what makes airplane work is that everybody's playing this straight. I mean, even yeah. the stuff with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just is great.
0: Isn't isn't the entire like the entire reason this movie works is that it is based on a script or a movie that is originally. A straight movie and like pretty wholesale they just take lines from that script and then just change the elements in the background to make it funnier.
1: Yeah. So this movie is directly parroting Airport which are a series of movies that came out in the 70s and kind of disaster movies in general you would get the Towering Inferno Earthquake you would get all these different kinds of movies that were disaster movies Airplane was really going after all of them but specifically after Airport um because obviously this is on an airplane and yeah this uh this movie is extraordinarily funny and just really economical i love 90 minute comedies i i I like a good three hour movie but comedies 90 minutes to 105 minutes it's perfect airplane if this movie is like 15 minutes longer i don't think it works no
0: and uh, in, in like even even the directors of this movie, it feels like they lose their way eventually as well. Because like, obviously this feels like such a, a flash in the pan, and obviously they all do naked gun, hot shots, and stuff like that, and variously. But then you end up seeing them doing scary movies, and you're just like, oh, this is sad that this is where you end up Like many decades down the line.
1: feels like it happens to the majority of directors, is that they have a good 10, maybe 20 years, and then it just it doesn't it doesn't work anymore. I mean Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg they're the exceptions. I think for the most part with a lot of these filmmakers just it's it whatever whatever magic they have it doesn't work anymore after 20 years.
0: Yeah. And and obviously we we've, we've already touched on Truman Show a little bit with Man on the Moon, but just a just a fantastic movie. Jim Carrey's tremendous. Uh it feels very prescient in terms of where television goes in the 2000s as well in some ways.
1: Yeah, I think this is a movie that actually came out a little bit too early. I think this is a movie that actually works out much better if it comes out in the 2000s or even the 2010s because just what it has to say about living this life and living in a reality show. And even if you think about it now with social media, we are willingly putting ourselves on camera all the time through TikTok and Snapchat and Skype and zoom. And we basically live our lives online now. So I think the Truman show is all the more relevant, Uh, just great performances. Again, you've got another tiny Paul Giamatti performance that is great. Ed Harris is the, the Uber director and producer and Jim Carrey, I mean, Jim Carrey is... When Jim Carrey wants to be, he could be a very endearing, almost Tom Hanks-like figure. No,
0: absolutely. Like, I mean, Truman Show is just... Certain movies feel like they kind of elevate. Like, the ones that become constant, like, rotation on, like, television and stuff like that are ones that feel foundational to so much. And this is this is one of those movies, I feel, where I've seen this movie on television so many times and I'll sit down and just watch, no matter what part... I'm watching whether or not it's the early sections where his life is going well. Even even if I show up and he's on the on the massive lake or whatever it is at the end, I will sit and just watch the end of the movie.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I hesitate to say this, but this is this is the kind of movie that I actually think could work as a limited series on a Netflix or an Amazon or a Hulu just because I think there is so much to this world that could be explored as far as like human rights and things like that. But yeah, I mean, this movie is just really good. It's my favorite Jim Carrey movie, uh, even now. Sonic the Hedgehog has not beaten it out. Uh, what a shame! A damn shame.
0: Okay, and and the Sting. Give me give me your Paul Newman and Robert Redford caper, uh, caper movie.
1: I am a huge fan of Paul Newman and Robert Redford. I think it's it is a shame that they only did two movies together. The both movies they did are on this list. I am it's one of those things where I remembered when I saw the old Man with a gun, which was Robert Redford's last movie and I was just missing the fact that Paul Newman also couldn't be in it because it was just like the perfect last movie. Uh, what makes this thing so great is it's kind of a heist movie um, but it's so much about the banter between the characters and it just it really clicks well. It's I mean, this is one of those movies where if you're looking for, like, really solid, like, statements about the world, this is not that movie. It it feels of a specific time, and the reason that it works is because of the chemistry between Newman and um, Redford. It also works because Robert Shaw is a tremendous bad guy. I think people, people always talk about him in Jaws, but he is just, he's so different in this movie compared to Jaws, but his presence is just of a very similar feeling.
0: That's fair enough, uh, and that brings us on to our final five. Well, not our final five. Uh, on to the next five. Uh, so we've got "It's a Wonderful Life" at number fifty-five, number fifty-four, "The Departed," and then fifty-three for fifty-one before trilogy. With, I'm intrigued by your your ranking of them here because they are in chronological order, which isn't my taste for them. But we'll start with "It's a Wonderful Life," which is quintessential Christmas movie.
1: Well, and Pete Davidson is going to be reading the part of George Bailey for charity. On the day we are recording this, it was announced that Pete Davidson would be reading this role. And that horrifies me to no end. Oh, God. (laughs) That is the best reaction I could have gotten out of Ben for that one. Um, It's a Wonderful Life is part of what makes it great is just Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart is the reason this movie works. I think Frank Capra, he's got a very specific sensibility, which may or may not have aged well. But just this idea of a man in a small town and the way that we touch other people, it's is it schmaltzy? Yes. But sometimes I think it really is important to just have the perspective of this is what we are doing and this is the life we are leading, and we really do have an impact on each other's lives. And I think that It's a Wonderful Life has been parodied, it's been redone, it's just, it just feels like a cliche at this point, but the message of the movie I still think works.
0: Yeah, this is one, it's weird, because I don't think it's got the cultural permeance that it's got in the US and the UK. Like, this, and I'm trying to, is it Christmas Story? It's like one of those, like, it feels like such an American or americana kind of christmas movie that doesn't
1: And the funny thing is that it's a wonderful life and a christmas story both were box office bombs but because they aired on cable forever and were on television every year they kind of wore people down
0: Yeah I mean I'm, I'm sure there's there's like ones but like when we have christmas movies on in the UK stuff like home alone feels like the american movies that have kind of permeated the culture in that way
1: um, I would just... agree with that. I mean, I think Home Alone is one of those movies that obviously is is very ubiquitous as well. I don't think it's as good as a Christmas story in a lot of ways. I think part of what makes a Christmas story and it's a wonderful life work is I think the performances are so good. I think Macaulay Culkin and Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are perfectly fine in Home Alone, but I think Home Alone is so much more about like the physicality of, those, of what's happening and less about the dialogue. And I think that for me, makes it a little bit less good than it's a wonderful life, which has a real hardcore and kind of a dark sensibility at times.
0: Speaking of dark sensibilities, we got the Departed, which is a movie that I've talked at length about, but is I always thought of it as kind of a not a lesser Scorsese, but I was like in my head it was like oh, it, it barely won the Oscar in two thousand six, like it was it was very much like a pity Oscar. And then rewatching it, I was like, no, this movie's fucking great and. People disparaging it are kind of, I I don't know what they're looking for from it. And I don't understand the people who think that it's better than, or it's not as good as Infernal Affairs.
1: Yeah, I I saw Infernal Affairs, and I definitely liked Infernal Affairs a lot. I just think it's two, two very different tones, and I think they're both going for different things. Martin Scorsese is just a very different filmmaker, so I think that that... Ultimately, is why people might might have an issue. I mean, this is a this is very much a Martin Scorsese movie. It's got the personality, it's got the masculinity, but you've also got Vera Farmiga, and I think she's really good in that role. And you've got Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio, and they're both kind of playing against type in some ways. You've got Jack Nicholson. I mean, Jack Nicholson did a couple movies after this. but this is like this is really like Jack Nicholson's like last hurrah, so to speak. And you could kind of feel it just in the way that he's just in the dialogue and the, his character and whatnot. It just it feels like a last hurrah. I I think this movie works. Also, if you look at the Best Picture nominees from this year, it was a really terrible year, and just for that reason alone, I think The Departed should have won. But I I really li- I think The Departed is one of those movies that I also maybe in my snobbery thought it, uh, thought of it as less than, but I still really I really like it. I think Scorsese movies I think tend to age really well.
0: Absolutely. I'm like really excited to watch stuff like The Irishman or even Silence. In like a few years' time, and see how they sit with me.
1: I mean, I re- uh, I remember even though The Irishman, I was dreading the runtime. I remember cruising through it, and I'm actually getting the uh, the Criterion Collection version of The Irishman, and I'm very excited to rewatch
0: it later this year. Yeah, I need to invest in those Netflix movies that the only release they're ever going to get is on the Criterion. Um, Speaking of movies, I have on the Criterion collection, uh, the, the very gorgeous Before trilogy box set is is absolutely wonderful. So, talk me through why you've got Before Sunrise at number fifty-one. Like, I assume this is just they're they're all tied for the same spot.
1: Yeah, basically they are all tied. Basically, you should all cons you should consider them all number fifty-one. I think the reality is is that I think Before Sunset is the best it is my favorite of the three, not because it's the shortest, but I think it's the perfect kind of medium ground between the first one and the third one. Uh, Ethan Hall comes off like a real twit in numbers one and three. I think he comes off the best in number two. I think that's part of the reason why um, I like number two the best. I think just the balance between the two characters and where our sympathies lie is, is done best in number two, but... I mean, you see Linklater kind of grow as a filmmaker over the course of these three movies as well. And I'm really excited by the prospect of a fourth one in 2022, even though you're always kind of risking it. But I just, I have tremendous confidence in what these three people can do in coming back to this because they're not doing it for money reasons. They're not doing it because of box office reasons. But I just think that for these three movies it comes down to do you like ethan hawk and julie delpy talking to each other if the answer is yes then these movies are going to work if the answer is no then you should move on to something else and that's perfectly acceptable because these these movies are not about plot it is so it is it's 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 a great litmus test for whether you value character versus plot because there's no plot to these three movies unless it is specific to these characters. Like before sunset has kind of a running clock, but there's not even really a plot to it. It's just about these two people talking, falling in love with each other. And I you know, even in even in our own lives, Ben, I'm sure that you've always maybe there has been a time when you've had a a night or something that has reminded you of before sunrise.
0: Oh no, absolutely. Like I think that's what makes these movies so impressive. And the similar reason why I like Boyhood is the kind of universal nature of what they're getting to. Like, maybe you haven't done this exact same thing, but you can probably reach down and find a similar event. Like, I remember, like, obviously this isn't, like, me and a girl. This is me and two of my best friends from university. Like, the night of our graduation party, we literally wandered around the town where our university was with a bottle of wine until the sun came up and we were sat in a field just watching the sun come up and it was just like one of those really beautiful nights that you kind of want to like emblazon in your mind in terms of like relationships and like interacting with each other and like what the future is going to hold for for you and all the rest of it like it's a just an incredibly beautiful series i love that each movie feels like it kind of borrows some of the energy of the movie that he was working on before he did it like there's a lot of like dazed and confused energy in the way that they treat each other in before sunrise there's weirdly a lot of that kind of like cheeky sense of humor of school of rock in before sunset and i presume he was shooting the final couple of scenes of boyhood around the same time he was doing before midnight and the the darkness and like the 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 breakdown of marriages and stuff like that obviously was preying on his mind around then as well
1: yeah and you've also got kind of Ethan Hawke's divorce from Uma Thurman kind of hanging over before sunset as well and everything that resulted from that and the fact that Maya Hawke is an actor now and I mean just seeing her just throws me off because she, I, and I know this this should be blatantly obvious but the fact that she looks exactly like what you would expect the product of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman to look like kind of freaks me out. <laughs> um, but I mean Ethan Hawke is such a good actor I, I just especially the last few years, rewatching this series on the Criterion Collection, you know, seeing the output that he's done in movies, watching the Good Lord Bird. I mean, he's one of those actors that probably doesn't get the credit he deserves. And I feel the same way about Julie Delpy. I mean, the only other movie that I've really seen Julie Delpy in is Avengers, um, Avengers Age of Ultron. And it's, I really, I need to see some of the work that she's directed, which admittedly do not have the best reviews, but... I mean, she is she feels like an equal to Ethan Hawke in all three of these movies, even though Ethan Hawke is probably the bigger movie star. It feels like an equal relationship. Absolutely. All right, Ben. So we have discussed 50 movies. We've talked about two hours. For some reason, Ben and I thought we were going to be able to do this in two hours, the full list. But Ben and I are not very smart. So we're going to come back again for part two because I don't want to give short shrift to the top 50. What do you think, Ben? This has been fun, though. Like,
0: Yeah, this is good. I, I, I've enjoyed the conversation so far. I feel like we had more to say about a lot of these things, or at least maybe I had more to say than you were expecting me to say about some of these, but it, it's been good, and now we're going to the top 50, which is kind of like more and more masterpieces, but maybe some more contentious movies.
1: Ooh, yes. This this will be exciting. We're going to reveal one of Bad's Ben Ben's bad movie opinions. We we have found one, everyone. So that'll be exciting for part two. Uh, I said we would not give short shrift to any movie in the top 50. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban's coming up. We might give short shrift to that one. <laughs> but for uh, Ben, why don't you take us home? You're the host. You take us home.
0: Yeah. So uh, this has been uh, a, a this is the, uh, enter the, this has been an enter the real world crossover. Uh, if you want to catch us on either of our two shows, what are you doing at the moment? in terms of podcasting. I know you've, you're, you're wrapping up your Breaking Bad series.
1: Yep, real bad. You, will, can, you can listen to our wrap-up of Season 4 that just came out last week, uh, and you'll be able to listen to our podcast on Season 5 very soon. And Ben, I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to reveal this to everyone. Our next rewatch, well for me it's a rewatch, for Kevin, a first-time watch, Halt and Catch Fire.
0: Ooh, exciting. That is very exciting. I might exciting. watch along with this one.
1: That's uh, it's very exciting. I'm so excited for Kevin to watch the final season. And you know what? Yeah,
0: has he only seen the first three seasons then? He, or is, is it just he, he has
1: not seen? seen any of it.
0: Ah, interesting, interesting. So be well, at this at this point, I think Matt and I are wrapping up. There will be movies. It's so hard to tell where we are on the timeline. I think we've got, we've got two episodes to record at the time that we're doing this. But that's going to see us through the end of this year. And then... Starting very early in 2021, we're going to be doing possibly the biggest mistake we've ever made on this podcasting network, but we'll see how that goes.
1: All right. Thanks. Thanks again, Ben. And we'll talk to you soon for part two.
0: Yes.